Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Our focus this morning will be on verses 13 through 15. We'll be reading 5, 1 and verses 13 through 25. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray your mercy and kindness on us sin-prone children. We are yours, and so we ask that you keep us from error on the left and error on the right. Father, I pray in that combating against one inclination, we won't overcorrect and fall into the other. And so may what be treasured among us be Christ and His truth and His gospel, and may that steady us so that we're not known simply by what we're against, but by what we're for. <clears throat> Grant your spirit now, toward that end, blessing your word, bringing forth fruit in our heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And standing... Firm and not submitting 
we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that defending the north side of the fort is the same thing as defending the fort. What is most important is the freedom stood in and not the legalism stood against. If you make standing firm against legalism on the north side your sole concern, you will likely find yourself attacked from behind, surprised by libertinism out of the south. In standing firm against legalism, it is easy to fall backward into libertinism or antinomianism, anti-against Nomos, the law, antinomianism. Luther colorfully said, often, and when he opened his mouth, it was colorful, uh, the world is like a drunken peasant. If you lift him into the saddle on one side, he will fall off again on the other side. One can't help him. No matter how one tries, he wants to be the devil's. So, It is. The world is doomed. They will fall off on one side or the other. The saints can be taught how to ride. They can learn how to run well. They can learn how to walk the straight and narrow by the Spirit. Even so, we the saints never keep it perfectly between the lines. We're constantly veering toward one side or the other. What marks us is Continual repentance. Not perfection, but continual repentance. Our ears must be tuned to the Word so that we quickly realize the rumble, uh, the rattle of the rumble strip and we know we need to bring it back one way or the other. In 5.1, we have the central exhortation of this letter. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In verses 2 through 6, he applies this to the Galatians personally. Then in verses 7 through 12, he applies it to them in reference to false teachers. And now he's going to apply it in these verses, 13 through 15, in reference to one another, in reference to our neighbor, in reference to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have three commands here. One, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Two, Through love, serve one another. And three, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And there's a but between each of these commands. And so you're basically told what not to do, what to do, and again, what not to do. So he says, not this, but this, but not this. And the first command comes as clarification. That's why the word, the the command begins with for. For you were called to freedom, brothers, and then the clarification, only. And so this is linking back to how Paul began this letter, and he wants to make a clarification now. And the freedom that they've been called into by God calling them into union with Christ is in danger of being abused. So the first part of this, there's a contrast in this. The first part of it is that this freedom is is not grasped, it's not enjoyed. Now he's talking about this freedom being abused. What is this freedom? 
Well, it's freedom from, it's freedom from being under the law, 323. It's under its curse, 310. Under sin, 322. Under the elemental spirits of this world, 43. But it's here, at this point, that we really begin to grasp something of what this is freedom to. But first we've got another negative. Do not use this freedom as a beachhead for entry back into slavery. Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. Flesh here referring to that principle of sin that remains with us in this life. Don't use your freedom for sin. Don't reason from freedom to slavery. Don't reason from grace to sin. You remember Paul asked in Romans 6, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or if the connection's not plain enough yet, he later in that same chapter, verse 15, asks, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Are we to sin because of our freedom? His answer, by no means. Now, whereas legalism seeks to merit, libertinism scorns. One son stays, another son flees. Both are disobedient. Both are disobedient. Sinclair Ferguson proves incredibly insightful when he writes, Legalism and antinomianism are, in fact, non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. And then he goes on to show how both of them separate God and His law. Both of them are a sin against the person of God, and they try to separate God and law. One of them presumes upon grace because of this, and the other one tries to merit it. But neither one honors the Father for who He is. Which son are you? Are you the older brother? Or are you the prodigal? Which way is your misalignment inclined to? Tim Keller warns, if you think one of these errors is much more dangerous than the other, you're probably probably participating in the one you fear less. While all of us likely, Rick, if, if we have any kind of spiritual acumen at all, we likely realize we have one inclination or the other. But once you realize you are veering one way or the other, then you, fought, you face the other danger of overreacting and going towards the other side. And so it is that we find in this letter where we have Paul's sharpest rebuke of legalism that there is this warning against antinomianism, libertinism. So then, what is this freedom to? It's clearly not a freedom to do whatever I want. 
Well, then what could it be? Asked the modern man. What kind of freedom is this? And the answer, verse 13, is that it's freedom to serve through love. But through love. Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Now we've often exhumed the Christian, the, 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 uh, the skeleton out of the Christian closet that whenever the New Testament says servant, most often that's euphemistically translated and should be rendered slave. We've often dealt with that. And likewise here, the word that you have for serve is the verbal form of that noun. It's much stronger. He's telling you, you've been freed, so slave for one another. You're freed from slavery for one another. What is freedom unto? Look around. It's unto one another. Slavery is being tied up in a Gordian knot of self. Freedom is being loosed by Jesus to love and serve one another. And if you're saying, this doesn't sound like freedom, here's Tom Schreiner's reaction. If, if you're saying to yourself, that doesn't sound like freedom but slavery, then you don't know what freedom is. You're still enslaved to your own selfish desires. People tied up in the knot of self don't get this. And yet they implicitly do. Think about the good stories you've read. Think about the people that you enjoy being around, that you think of them as good people. And then run this analysis. Put the selfish ones over here, the, unselfish, the, the, the selfish ones here, unselfish ones here of the persons you know, and which one of them seems to be free? Is it the person who's tied up in the knot of self? Does that person seem to be free? Or is it the person who just freely gives of their time and of themselves to others? Who's free? Being tied up to the desires of a selfish, blind, hell-bound sinner isn't freedom, even if that sinner is yourself. That isn't freedom. And further, this is not a forced slavery. It is an embraced slavery. Love within turns the prison walls without from being thought of that which confines you to being fortress walls that protect you. Slavery of one Israelite by another was limited to a duration of seven years and it was all couched in terms that protected the slave. And the only way it could go beyond seven years, the only way it could be forced is upon the initiative of the slave. And for this reason, Exodus 21, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. And then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. In the church, in covenant love, we bind ourselves all to one another in this way. 
to serve and love and honor and respect one another. And so John Stott is as correct as he is succinct when he says, Christian liberty is service, not selfishness. Standing firm and not not submitting so as to protect our freedom does not mean erecting barricades so that others don't infringe upon our liberty. Standing firm and not submitting bars the gates to false teachers and false teaching, but it opens wide the door to our brother and sister in Christ and sets the table as richly as possible in love. Paul has just given this command to use our freedom to serve one another, and now he wants to give a basis for this command, and the basis is the law, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul has been hammering freedom from the law, and now he says, you've been set free to fulfill the law. Come again? Freedom from the law isn't lawless. This is the way Paul expounds on this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. When you hear that, you need to be thinking freedom from the law. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order. He did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You were set free from the law, that the law might actually, really, genuinely, albeit you mix it with sin in some way, but nonetheless there's a real principle of love to God and love to your neighbor, so that the law could actually be fulfilled in you. If sin... And rebellion, if sin and bondage mean rebelling against God, then righteousness and freedom can't mean the same thing. Righteousness and freedom and the law all walk hand in hand. Obedience to God is freedom. Obedience presumes God's righteous, just, good law. The law shows us that we are in bondage to self as it puts before us what life free from the knot of self looks like. It says this is what it looks like whenever you're not in bondage. This is what life unto God looks like. And it's in that way it shows us how we're twisted and turned in on self. Paul elsewhere says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Now, you never want to read a text without context, but that is simply a truth that can stand on its own. The law of God is holy and righteous and good. And if you're itching for some qualifier, take it as Paul gives it to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, Paul has demonstrated that the Judaizers not only perverted the gospel, they were perverting God's law. And now he's showing us a right use of the law. This is how to use it properly. On one side of the cross, the law shows us that we are sinners in need of a Savior who will keep the law for us to be our righteousness and who will bear the curse of the law in our place. And then on the other side of the cross, the law of God is used by God to conform us to the image of our Savior. And if you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, it means being conformed to the one who said His meat was to do the will of His Father, and who kept every dot of the law. The Scott theologian Ralph Erskine, contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, captured this beautifully in verse. I'll just give you a a part of this poem. The law's a tutor much in vogue to gospel grace a pedagogue. The gospel to the law no less than its full end for righteousness. When once the fiery law of God has chased me to the gospel road, then back unto the holy law most kindly gospel grace will draw. When by the law to grace I'm schooled, grace by the law will have me ruled. Hence if I don't the law obey, I cannot keep the gospel way. The law makes grace's pastures sweet. Grace makes the law my savory meat. Yea, sweeter than the honeycomb when grace and mercy bring it home. The precepts of the law me show what fruits of gratitude I owe. But gospel grace begets the brood and moves me to the gratitude. Law terrors pain the putrid sore, and gospel grace applies the cure. The one plows up the fallow ground, the other sows the seed all around. A rigid master was the law, demanding brick, denying straw, but when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The law drives us to the gospel. And then the gospel drives us to the law. One, for our salvation. And the other, as part of our sanctification. And yet again, it seems that we now only dodge one question to encounter another. We're freed such that we can actually obey the law, never perfectly, but actually obey it with a true impulse to love of God and love of neighbor. If that's true, and this happens by the Spirit, it's all happening because of God. I'm not meriting anything from Him when I do this. I'm going deeper in His debt. 
And whenever all this is happening, if that's true, why does he put it in terms such as that loving our neighbor is fulfilling the whole law? Jesus said that the first and greatest command was to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it to love our neighbor as ourself. But it's second. How is the first not being supplanted by the second in this? You remember that the Ten Commandments were more accurately the ten words from the fire? Remember the ten words from the fire, we divide them, theologians do, into two tables. The first four commands are all Godward. And the following six are manward. That's the order. God, then man. And it all begins this way. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love and compassion to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. No other gods to be served but Yahweh. Here we're called to serve man. So how is it that this service of man is not a subversion of service unto God first? Let's complicate things a bit more first. This is not the only place we see this in the New Testament. And and very shortly, chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or in Romans 13, Paul says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Now you notice which ones he pulled from. Which side of the table did he get the explicit one stated from? The second side. And then he says, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And it's not just Paul. James wrote, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So how is it that the second hasn't supplanted the first in this? It's because love of neighbor is the pudding in which we find the proof. The Pharisees were all about God's law. They would say they loved God, but they twisted and perverted the law such that it was twisted in on self and away from their neighbor. They put on a show of love to God. But where their love of God was shown to be hypocrisy was in the bankruptcy of their love of their neighbor. 
John explains it this way. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love God, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. But if you read even this text real slowly, you can see how the second commandment does not supplant the first. It's right here. For the whole law is fulfilled. Whose law? God's. Why are you moved? To love your neighbor? Why do you want to obey this law? Because of the God. Who is the true elder brother. Who so loved and served you. If your professed love of God does not work its way out in love. Toward your brother and sister in Christ. And your neighbor's. You're fooling yourself. As freedom from the law isn't lawless, notice this, the love is not lawless. Love is not doing what you want for another person, even whenever your feelings and motives towards that person are one of love and benevolence and kindness. Love is not doing what you want for another person. Neither is love doing for another person what they want. Love is doing for another what God wants. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Love is what the law commands, and the commands are what love love fulfills. Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured out in the heart by the Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. They are mutually interdependent. The notion that love can operate apart from law is a figment of imagination. Now, the final contrast. If you use your freedom as a beachhead For the flesh. This is what it looks like. Verse 15. If you bite and devour one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Instead of freedom from the knot of self. To be led by the spirit. To fulfill the law and love of our neighbor. You see this animal like ravenous fleshly devouring of one another. After Adam bit the apple. He was soon biting Eve. His libertinism quickly led to cannibalism. James explains, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
Or again, let's look to our text and see this. If you use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, what are the works of the flesh? And notice how many of them are not termed in just some kind of something I do that doesn't really directly, immediately impact others. Notice how many of the works of the flesh are in relation to others. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. If you use your freedom as a beachhead for the flesh, watch out. You will devour one another. Ain't nobody can eat their own like Christians. Because self is central, we don't stand against legalism. Because self is central, we don't stand against libertinism. Because self is central, what we really stand for is self. And because we do, we divide, we, we, we bite. That, that was a combination of bite and devour. Because we do, we bite and devour one another. We're fighting all the wrong fights. And where war is called for, we're pacifists. Because we're bent in and tied up in self. We know neither the law nor love, neither the gospel nor freedom, neither the legalist nor the libertine gets any of this. They're both centered on self. Stand firm because the danger not only lies on both sides, the danger lies within. The flesh wants to veer one way or the other. Because both of them are about self. John MacArthur writes, Someone has pictured legalism and libertinism as two parallel streams that run between heaven and earth. The stream of legalism is clear, sparkling, and pure, but its waters run so deep and furiously that no one can enter it without being drowned or smashed on the rocks of its hard, harsh demands. The stream of libertinism, by contrast, is relatively quiet and still, and crossing it seems easy and attractive. But its waters are so contaminated with poisons and pollutants that to try to cross it is also certain death. Both streams are uncrossable and deadly. One because of impossible moral and spiritual demands. The other because of moral and spiritual filth. And so can you see that jumping off the starboard side is no great way to prevent falling off the port side? The objective is to stay on the boat, standing firm against legalism should not be our sole concern. If it is, we will find ourselves falling off into libertinism. But our our joy should be standing in Christ, in the gospel. And in the freedom we have as sons in Him.
And therein, out of joy and gratitude to buy the Spirit, live unto Him in obedience, obeying His commands as an expression of love to Him and love to others. Stand firm. Do not submit. You're free. Use that freedom to love your brother. Let's pray. Holy Father, magnify your great name in the salvation rich and full that saves us not only from the dominion of sin, but increasingly more and more definitively and progressively from the power of sin such that we see the law fulfilled in us as an expression of love unto you and love unto our neighbor. Grant grace so that all glory may abound all the more to Christ our Lord, in whose name we ask this. Amen.